The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. We're glad that you could join us uh, earlier or now, and uh, especially if you're new, we're thankful that you're here. Um, we are at a transition point. We're at this moment where we're sort of kicking out of summer mode and we're about to head into the fall. And in the summer mode for us is a time to, to sit back, relax, to, to still meet, but also to recognize there's a lot of coming and going. And in particular, for some of you who are new, you're, you're just coming here for the first time and we're excited that you're here. One of the things that we wanted to do, especially through uh, August in particular, was to take some time and, and just look at what are some of the fundamentals of this community? What, what sort of, how, do, how do we remember what we're about, what the focus is, what the direction is, not just for people who are new, but also for us that we can think about it again, perhaps, maybe, maybe dream some new dreams about what God has in store for us this year. This is the last day, and then next week we take the week off, and then we kick things off in our regular kind of fall um, mode, uh, starting on the 13th, and we're getting excited for it. One of the things we're going to do is we're going to tackle the book of Revelation, uh, which is a meaty book. Uh, It's it's an exciting book. It's a book that I've actually been um, looking forward to teaching on uh, for about five years, but I've been waiting for that moment, and I think the moment is here. Um, Tonight, though... Uh, tonight is mostly about us spending time around the table and um, spending some time uh, worshiping. What I want to do, right as we're on this transition, is I want to I share with you one story that's going to tie that together. One story that has to do with beginnings and ends. That story starts really with uh, Jesus um, ascending to heaven. And at this point, normally what you would see is you would see a a movement, a group collapse. Because in a lot of ways, Jesus looked like a lot of uh, revolutionaries, gathered a bunch of people around. In fact, his his disciples were saying, when are we going to start the war? He died. And at this point, though, normally what you see is these groups, and they're time and time again, there were so many of them that people thought Jesus was just another one of these guys that that kicks up kind of this revolution, it gets squashed as soon as the leader dies. Well, not not only did the leader not just die, but he rose again, and there's now whispers that something is going on. But then Jesus is like, all right, hey, I'm alive, it's all good, see ya, right? He's out. Well, at this point, you think, man, this thing is going to collapse and fall apart, but it doesn't collapse. In fact, there's something powerful that happens at this, this uh, festival, Jewish festival called Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit is poured out. And now this, this thing is not just collapsing, caving in, going away. It's actually expanding like crazy, expanding so much that the, the original disciples are overloaded and they need to bring others in to help them. It's one of those um, people, a, a guy named Stephen, who by some of the things that he says, and he's not a particularly, you know, outrageous guy. He's not particularly, you know, he's not up there trying to pick a fight with anybody. But some of the implications of what he says so enrages the people that, that had tried to stamp out this movement by, by killing Jesus. So enrages that they decided that they're going to kill him. And it's at that time when, when full of rage, they begin to st- stone Stephen to death. That we pick up. That as they're throwing their cloaks aside, that we, we see that their witnesses laid their coats. This is in uh, Acts chapter 7. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, 
he was there, he was into it, he, he, was, he was approving of this, and yet he wasn't quite ready to get in the action, but in a, in a, within a chapter, he's in. He's fully in. He's not on the sidelines. He, he is in. And so we pick up um, in, uh, in Acts chapter 9. We read that, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters uh, to the synagogue in Damascus so, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was an early way to describe uh, people who followed Jesus. So the way, uh, people who are following Jesus' way. Okay? Er- early name for Christians. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So he led them by the hand. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. We talked about the part of the vision of what convergence is about is it's about it's thinking about the trajectory of people's lives, particularly in this, I believe, probably most important stage, 20s and 30s. There's something unique that happens in our 20s and 30s. We start making decisions that set us on a trajectory. Always can be one that can change. Always can be one that can be tweaked. And yet that trajectory is going to carry us. It's going to take us towards a destination. Now, we can, we can sort of have a sense of deciding that uniquely, or we can just be carried along. It doesn't matter. We're still going to be headed in a direction. Well, what we want to do is we want to be a place where we can begin to say, how do we begin to help people understand what God's passion and vision and mission is for the world and how their lives can, can be aligned with that trajectory? Knowing that that trajectory is not only going to have an impact in your life, but in the lives of those around you. A significant impact in the lives of those around you. For the trajectory that you set on your life is not just about your own spiritual journey. It's going gonna, it's gonna to set the course of what happens in your family, whatever that looks like. In your place of work, in your community. What the future of the political scene or, or, or a city looks like is going to depend on what the decisions you make. You can say, I don't want to. I don't really care. It doesn't matter. It's going to have an impact. What we want to do is we want to think about that trajectory. Well, here's, here's this guy named Saul. He is set on a trajectory and radically his life is about to change. That trajectory is about to to get totally more so honestly than most of us. Most of us don't get knocked off our horse in in a moment and then have our lives change. But he is headed in a clear direction, one in which he feels is the very is leading to the very best person he can be with the, the, the greatest impact. As we continue on, we read that in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. Saul's, Saul's about to have his trajectory changed, but not yet. Jesus has done a lot. The Spirit's done a lot. He's spoken a lot. And yet for some reason, we have Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come 
uh, he's seen uh, a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. In other words, the understanding of who Israel was as a special part of what God was doing in the world is about to get blown up. It's about to get bigger than anyone had expected. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off from Saul's eyes and he could see again. It's interesting, um, when we start to think about what does it look like for us to to be part of what God is doing? To even ask, why would God include us in, in, as we begin to understand God's heart, in what He's doing in the world? One of the ways we've used to maybe just think about that is this idea of release. We've talked about the the vision of convergence to release God's future today. And what release does is it helps us understand that for some reason, Ananias has a really important role. For some reason, God wants us to be part of what he's doing in the world. It has something to do with the image of God being stamped on us. That we're not called to just watch. We're not called to just have things done for us. We're called to be co-creators with God. He, he somehow brings us in, but when we understand, we could, do, we could do a lot of work, we could put in a lot of effort, but when we understand really the enormity of what is going on, all we can do really is we're just flipping a switch. We're just releasing. This guy Ananias, all he's got to do is go to some house, knock on the door, pray for some dude in there, and he's out. The future of the, of the church will be changed, though, because of that action. He didn't have anything to do with this guy Saul. In fact, he freaked out about it. He's not going to have anything to do afterwards. We don't even hear about Ananias again, except once more when uh, uh, Paul will talk about him later. He says, the guy's a great guy. He was well-respected. But all all he did is he showed up and he said, look, I'm supposed to pray for you. I don't really know what this is about. And yet somehow that is the linchpin and it turns. When we begin to understand our role, there is this wonderful sense of, yeah, we, we put in a lot of work sometimes. Sometimes it, it's hard, and yet we get these moments where we realize the enormity of what we get to be a part of. All we're doing is just, we're just releasing something. And God has somehow allowed us to play that role. What he's going to release is somebody who's, who is going to extend the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, like nobody else. Throughout the known world, he's going to blow up this idea of who Israel thought they were and what the mission that they thought that they had in the world. And he's going to expand it way, way beyond what anyone could have ever thought. We talked about how do we break down this idea of releasing God's future today? Because see, see, God's future in some ways, in this instance, had to do with his message going beyond where it had gone before. Beyond what people thought, the people who they thought it should go to. It's, no, it's for everybody. It's going to extend to all the earth. And yet, as we said, okay, so somehow, as we begin to understand, we want to try to grapple with what, what's God have in mind for the future? That, let's break it down. 
It's got to include somehow that we grow in faith, that we, our, our desire is that this would be a place where we can, our faith can grow. Now for Paul, it's not that his faith, he's chucking it out. It's just that his faith is going to have to get bigger and deeper. And he's going to have, his faith is going to now inform him in such a way that he, there is nothing that can stop Paul. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Secondly, is he's going to have to get a kingdom vision. He was going in a direction in a vision. He thought, if I, if I kill, arrest, stamp out, take out these people of the way, that somehow that's the very best way that I can be a, a, make a significant impact. Suddenly, he's got a different vision for his life, and it radically changes what he does and how he does it. Radically changes. And he's going to discover a unique place that he is called to play in that. A, a place that, by the way, none of the other disciples, apostles, these 12 people, that, men that had walked with Jesus, are going to do certainly like he does. We're also going to discover, as we go along, we say, okay, you've got to grow in faith, you need a kingdom vision, but also... We're hoping to create an, a place where people can begin to discover those uh, men and women they can walk with throughout life. Those people that will help them. Because when you understand the enormity of the vision before us, you can't do it on your own. You can't do it without the help of God. You can't do it on your own either. And one of the great things you see of Paul, you, you get these little windows into his life, is that, that he is a guy who has friends. Unbelievable friends. But not just friends that... You know, not just friends that they just hang out, but people who are in the trenches with him that he can depend on, that, that he laughs with, that, that he, has a, that he has, it shares incredible joy with, but also people that, that he'll cry with, people that will be with him, some of them till the very end, when his life is taken. When we talk about developing community, there's, you know, Band of Brothers was one of those movies that, that caught a lot of people's um, and the miniseries that caught people's attention. And there was something about this these group of guys that was just amazing in, in the camaraderie and the closeness that they had. You think it's not because they just were a bunch of guys that were like, let's hang out. I don't have anything else to do. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's go fight a war. I don't know. So, right? No, but they, they got pulled into something. Guys who would never be together, but because they had such a, a huge task, they had to depend on one another. And because of that, they became close. That there's just a recognition that at some point we're looking for those people who will be with us in the trenches through good and through bad. The people that we know that we can depend on because, gosh, we can't do it. Scripture is clear. This is not uh, a one-man sport. Brenna, she put a four-square court out here. As I heard about it, I, didn't get to, I wish I would have been here. You can't play four-square alone. You can't do this thing alone. You're called to, to live big. And you see Paul, he is, he's got more partners than you can imagine. Let's shift gears though. Where are we going? We're going to talk about we're going to talk about this book Revelation. That I'm imagining there's probably as many different impressions in this room as there are people. Um, it is funny this this idea of this book of Revelation. Most people probably know it, but it's interesting that that we know it by another word that is actually out of the Greek, which doesn't always happen. But it's just, the word apocalypse. Is another word for revelation. At the beginning of the book, you read about the apocalypse of Jesus Christ that John is, is about to write down and share. Well, apocalypse has this, it has all kinds of connotations, doesn't it? Right? As I just grabbed, I just Googled a few, right? You got Bruce Willis, meteors, you know, we got 
you know, we got the Statue of Liberty, somehow it has a skull, I don't know, but anyways, right? Get Apocalypse now. Apocalypse, I mean, it is everywhere. It is rooted in the imaginations, in the imagination of culture. And yet, so much of what has captured us is not really what this word is actually about. So much of what we think about with apocalypse is, is we associate things you know, in which something that is dehumanizing, destruction, calamity, the end, fire, blood. You, you kind of the unraveling. Apocalypse, those of you who have seen apocalypse now, you see the unraveling of a person in, in which they become in some ways less human, not more human. The thing about apocalypse, though, is that that might be what kind of has captured the imagination of culture. And, and you know, we get zombies and somebody mentioned snow apocalypse, right? We put apocalypse onto the end, and when anything, it's huge, right? And yet what apocalypse is about is about seeing. It's about an, in some ways, if I were to boil it down and make it simple, it's, it's, a, it's an aha moment. This is what we need to recapture. It's that moment when you're cruising along and suddenly you see things in a new way. You've had that experience, right? You, you, suddenly you go, this is what my major is supposed to be. This is what I think my career direction should be. Gosh, these are the people that I need to invest in. Man, I, six friends. You, you've seen them the whole time and yet you realize three of them are leading you in a place that... Um, they're not bringing out the best in you. They're bringing out the worst in you, but... But these three, somehow you see new, new eyes. Apocalypse is about seeing and seeing it in such a way that we see what matters. We see what direction it is that we need to take. What, what is it that is important? It's those moments of clarity that somehow it's not that you, it's not that you haven't seen something before, but you see it in a new way where it, 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 it's that aha moment. It snaps. It's, it's for Paul. It's this moment when the art throughout the centuries has, has picked up on. It's this that suddenly he's going in a direction and all of a sudden he sees something. He, he thinks he's moving into this place where um, he is moving to the ultimate, the pinnacle. He's moving, he's moving to, he, he's living the good life, a significant life, a meaningful life. And yet he realizes for all his good intention, all his training, all his passion, all his pedigree, that he's heading in the wrong direction. His tra- trajectory isn't towards glory, that sense of significance, character, strength, beauty, courage. He's actually heading towards destruction. He's doing the very opposite of what he had set out to do. The other thing about Apocalypse, about this sort of this aha moment, this scene, is, is to notice its effect. What, what happens when you see? What happens when you get this vision? And, and this is where vision gets beyond sort of just like we're not talking about. Sometimes what we do is we approach the Bible. And this is why I think Revelation is so hard is that, that some, like Paul's letters in particular, they can be a little bit more like, let's, let's kind of go down the checklist, right? Very, very laid out, very logical. And yet so much of our life is not just about what we know, but about what drives our passions and, and our imaginations and, and what speaks to our fears. And, and what's the image that ultimately I'm, I'm heading towards? Well, with Apocalypse, and we're talking about it within a Christian sense, is you see that the effect is not what we see with so often with this, which is destruction, which is often fear, which is often a sense of, of things becoming dehuman, dehumanized, people being stripped down, turning into cannibals. When you think about 
all these post-apocalyptic movies that are out there that we see. That we see. Nah, it's, it's, it's different. It doesn't call us to, to retract back, to, to hide out and wait for, you know, count down and wait, wait for the moment when it, it all ends. It actually does the opposite effect. It actually brings us to not just stand in the place when all others have run away. Not just stand, but actually move towards. So let's think about it. Ananias. What does he do? On one hand, you know, all he had to do is knock on a door and say, hey, I'm here to pray for you, and he's out. Right? That's all he's got to do. On the other hand, you realize that this is a guy who, in a lot of ways, he set a, he set a trajectory of, uh, of investment in a particular direction. He is well known within the community, the religious community in particular. And he has the kind, he has the kind of faith and relationship with God in which he can go, hey, just real quick, I know about Saul, Almighty, appreciate the vision. I know about Saul, the dude's crazy. <laughs> Did you know that? You know, you can just imagine. Just real quick, just real quick, I could die doing this, right? I could die. And yet, he could die. All he knows up until that point, until he gets this crazy vision of Jesus speaking to him in a dream, is that Saul is known as public enemy number one of the people who follow Jesus. That's all he knows. And at some point, he has to decide, what am I going to do? Am I going to run for the hills because Saul's in town? Or am I going to actually stand? And not just stand, but am I going to walk towards? Here's what Apocalypse does when we get it right. Apocalypse does this. The Apocalypse makes you walk towards the very person whom you're most afraid of. And say, <laughs> you're... You're scary, but you're my brother. You go in, you put a hand. Ananias says, brother. Can you imagine that? Think about that. Public enemy, number one, he goes in and he goes, sister. You're crazy. Sister, right? Dear Jesus, please don't let me get killed. I'm going to pray for you, right? There's a sense he walks in and suddenly this person who is an enemy becomes a friend. Not only did you stand, you actually walked towards. Think about what happens with Paul. Paul gets, he gets knocked off his horse. What happens? We see Paul suddenly move into a place where he catches this, this bigger vision for his life. In fact, it, it, it's not just faith and the sort of uh, practices and, and things to believe, but he gets this vision of Jesus who has asked him to go into all kinds of crazy places. Paul becomes this amazing person that in, in which nothing can stop him. I mean, nothing can stop him. And when you read kind of, especially through Acts, and you get little, little bits throughout, the, throughout his letters, you see a guy that you, shipwreck doesn't stop him. Beatings don't stop him. Being misunderstood doesn't stop him. Dysfunctional communities doesn't stop him. Drama doesn't stop him. Imprisonment doesn't stop him. We're people who live in environments in which we have to deal with stuff that doesn't go right, with disasters, with calamities, with being misunderstood, with families and communities that are dysfunctional and full of drama, in which we sometimes are accused of things that we haven't even done, in which the latest thing is always ready to, is always there to, to throw us aside. Man, doesn't stop Paul. 
fact, this is what I love in the book of Philippians. There's this little, this, 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 these little throwaway lines. He's actually writing from prison, probably an imprisonment where he's under house arrest. And yet, there's a, there's a Praetorian guard, which is kind of an elite guard. And Paul's writing to the Philippians, and there's this mul- and he's kind of writing with this weird joy about him. And that's the thing with Paul. He's not, he's not, he's tough as nails. I mean, the dude just doesn't, doesn't stop, right? He gets beaten, he gets thrown in jail, he just starts singing. And suddenly, we read in Acts that, that, that the walls break open. He's in prison with, underneath a guard that will probably kill him. And he's writing, he's like, hey, by the way, I just let you know, it, kind of the, the public enemy number one for the church right now, Rome, kind of the elite Praetorian guard of Caesar's household. And, and, and you know, the church goes in and out of whether they are kind of seen as, uh, they're sort of mildly tolerated or whether they're actually being persecuted and, and Nero's, you know, lighting up Christians on stakes for his garden parties, right? This is, this is his guard. He goes, hey, by the way, your brothers and sisters in Christ, in Caesar's household and his guard, they say hi. I mean, can you imagine? It's just kind of this weird sense of like, he is in the most dangerous place in that time, saying, hey, the guards, they say hi. All those from Caesar's household and now your brothers and your sisters say hi. Nothing can stop Paul. That's what Apocalypse does. This image, this is a designer that I'm working with is probably going to kill me for showing this because it's not quite done. This is an image that we came up with, hopefully to get around the 80s metal images of you know, dragons and stuff. But anyways, <laughs> Apocalypse is about moving towards hope. Apocalypse, and here's a post-apocalypse. What do we mean by that? We mean zombies, we mean destruction. What is post-apocalypse if we were to, if we were to use kind of, the, kind of dodgy definitions? In Christian sense, in, in this book of Revelation, post-apocalypse is not blood and death. Post-apocalypse is beauty and life and flourishing and order and God living amongst his people. Culture, that's post-apocalyptic in Revelation. So that's where we're going. Um... All of us have a sense of where we're headed. For Paul, he says, look, we all want to live lives of significance. We talked about glory a little while ago. If we can get it out of this kind of Christian church world, as glory is sort of that sense when you realize at the end of someone's life, sometimes at at memorials, glory is when you see um, a person's character, who they were, what did they accomplish. And, and glory always leaves you in a sense of awe. It always moves you. It always challenges you. It inspires you. It, it makes you reprioritize it. It, it, it makes you reprioritize and, and think about what is it that I'm really doing? What matters? That's glory. Paul says, you, you want to know your hope of glory, that, that, that spark that is in every human person? This mystery, it's Christ in you. Your hope of glory is not bound up with what you do and who you are and how much you try to impress everyone around you, it's bound up with your life being connected to God and His faithfulness. That's where your glory is. That is the hope of glory. And then you get to work it out and head in the right direction. That's what the rest of your life is.
Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, uh, we do communion every now and then, and, and one of the reasons we do that is that communion really is that time in which all things, pardon the plug, converge. Communion is that moment in which all of what God longs to do in us, they come together. Um, faith is in me, in a person. Your community is around me, a person. A vision for life is around me. That it, there is a moment in which we are invited to participate in what God is doing in this world in powerful ways. Every time we come to this table, in, in a lot of ways, it's a decision point. It's not a decision on, am I good enough? It's a decision to say, I'm going to follow the way of Jesus. I'm putting my hopes and my, my dreams on Him. It's a, it, it's a moment for us to let go in some ways and to say, you know what? I've been chasing all kinds of other things. I've been driven by fear. I see sin in my life that has come out of a place of fear or longing or, or confusion. And yet I'm going to say, I'm going to let go of that. And I'm going to say, Lord, forgive me. And I want to be found in you here. It's a moment that if you don't know Jesus, this doesn't really make sense. This isn't, it's this just, this just grape juice. I didn't even buy Welch's, okay? It's generic. <laughs> Someday I'll slip in wine and you'll surprise, you'll surprise you. This only makes sense because in this, we somehow enter into the sacred mystery of Jesus because it was on the night that he was betrayed, the night that he was going to die, it was all going to crash in and the movement should have fallen apart that he says, I'm going to share a meal with you because this is about your relationship with me. And so he takes bread and he says, this, this bread, it's just around the table, this is my body that is broken for you. Stop trying to earn a sense of significance, repentance, forgiveness. It's, uh, my body is given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup. He takes wine that would have been at the table. And he says, look, this is a new covenant. Short on a covenant is that you could say it's a new commitment. Commitment that is not contractual, not based, not with a bunch of escape clauses. It's based on... Jesus' faithfulness, not ours. One that he takes so seriously that he, it's in his own blood. He said, this is for the forgiveness of your sins. That, Gosh, I'm calling you to follow me. To live in me. To, to walk with me. To live a life in which you're going to see and do more than you ever thought was even possible but you're going to realize that somehow you get to participate in it, but man, it is not about you. Paul says this often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. What that really means is that we kind of enter into this mystery where we, we realize that our, our, we're released from our past. We're empowered in this moment right now to take the next bold, frightened step forward. And we live with hope despite the fears, despite the stuff that we see that, that scares us, despite the snowstorm, if you will, that tells us to, to, 
to stay home, to hobble down, to sit on the sidelines. We live with hope. Pray, Lord, thank you for this meal. Thank you for this invitation in which you just invite us in. Invite us in to participate with you. Lord, we come with open hands because we don't bring anything. And yet you give us everything. So Lord, um, as we do so, we pray that you begin to, to give us courage to do what we need to do tomorrow. To, to, to take that next step of faith, whatever that is for us. To, to let go of what it is, the burdens we bring into this place that um, accuse us. Lord, we long to live free and so we come to your table. For you have invited us in your name. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of worship and um, invite you to think, to spend some time praying and to think, what is it that God would have for you? What is that, that risk? What is that step of faith? What is it that you long to see released in your own life and in the lives of, of those around you and your friends and your family, maybe even in your community? One of the ways we... We participate, we, we release is by simply praying and saying, God, I don't know what to do about this, but you do. I invite you into a time of prayer. We're going to spend some time praying. At the end of last year, we, we, I invited people to write down, where's your hope? Where's your prayer? Be bold about it. And people were bold. It was amazing. We're going to let them start us off as we um, continue in worship. Be blessed by the people who are willing to, to step out, um, who are willing to risk, who are willing to move beyond cynicism. Let it lead your own prayers.